12. The evening or at night, fall a prey to these leather-winged rovers of the night air, and weak as the latter would seem to be, some of them are able to seize and devour beetles which appear to be far beyond their powers. Thus, the largest of our British species, the great bat, or noctual scotophilus noctula, which, however, is only about three inches in length, preys freely upon such large and hard-shelled insects as cockchafers. These, in fact, appear to be its favorite food, and for their consumption its broad and comparatively strong jaws would seem to be specially fitted, while its large and powerful wings, measuring 14 or 15 inches from tip to tip when expanded, enable it to fly with the rapidity necessary for the pursuit and capture of such powerful prey. When thus engaged, the noctual haunts the neighborhood of trees, and generally flies at a considerable elevation, from which, however, his shrill cry easily reaches the ear of the passerby. His addiction to a large prey gives rise to a curious movement, thus noticed by Professor Bell in his valuable book on British quadrupeds. An observer will not watch his movements long, says the professor, without noticing a maneuver which at first looks like the falling of a tumbler pigeon, but on closer examination proves to be simply a closing of the wings, and a consequent drop of about a foot. Sometimes, this is repeated every few yards, as long as in sight. It is occasioned by some large and intractable insect having been captured, and the anterior joint of the wing, with its well-warmed thumb, is required in retaining it until masticated, notwithstanding this little difficulty. However, the noctual is pretty rapid in disposing even of his most recusant prey, as he has been known to consume as many as thirteen cockchafers one after another. The foregoing statements apply to all our British bats, and indeed, in the matter of food and general habits, to the great majority of the species of the order, in whatever country they may occur, but in the tropical and subtropical regions of the eastern hemisphere, we find a great and important group of bats, which, although agreeing in general structure and habits with our European species, differ from them altogether in their diet. These bats, distinguished generally, among other things, by their larger size and more robust construction, and by certain characters of the molar teeth grinders, from the ordinary bats, are almost exclusively confined to a fruit diet, in search of which they fly vigorously, often in flocks, like birds, at the commencement of the night, from this peculiarity of their food they are commonly known as fruit bats, while the larger species, such as the Indian fruit bat and the colong of the eastern archipelago, which are respectively 11 and 14 inches in length, are sometimes called flying foxes, in allusion to the prevalence of a reddish tint in their fur and their more or less lengthened and dog-like muzzles, in many parts of the eastern world, in India, the Malayan archipelago, Australia, Africa, and even in outlying islands at some distance from their main range, these fruit bats occur in great numbers, swarms of them roost together during the day, hanging from the branches of the trees which they select as their regular resting place, and taking wing at sunset, fly off frequently to great distances in search of their favorite articles of food, for they by no means devour indiscriminately any kind of fruit, but show a distinct preference for particular sorts, generally selecting such as are also prized by their human competitors. Hence they often do considerable damage in plantations of fruit trees, as when they meet with articles that suit taste, they seem, like some human gourmands, not to know when to leave off eating, of one of the smaller Indian species, the margin fruit bat. Mr. Dobson obtained a living specimen in Calcutta, and he gives the following account of its voracious appetite, he gave it a ripe banana, which, 
with the skin removed, weighed exactly two ounces, the animal immediately, as if famished with hunger, fell upon the fruit, seized it between the thumbs and the index fingers, and took large mouthfuls out of it, opening the mouth to the fullest extent with extreme coarsity. In the space of three hours the whole fruit was consumed. Next morning the bat was killed, and found to weigh one ounce, half the weight of the food eaten in three hours. Indeed, the animal when eating seemed to be a kind of living mill, so continuously does its food pass through it. From the statements of some writers, it would appear that although these bats live chiefly upon fruits, they occasionally, like many other frugivorous animals, diversify their diet with animal food, devouring insects of various kinds, caterpillars, birds' eggs, and even young birds, while there seems to be some reason to believe that one species even feeds upon shellfish which it picks up upon the seashore. The fruit-eating bats of this group are not found in the warmer parts of America, but some American bats feed chiefly upon fruits, while many of the large essentially insectivorous species which occur there vary their diet more or less with fruits, and also occasionally attack and devour other vertebrate animals some of them but it is still very doubtful how many have another habit connected with their feeding, which renders them very decidedly objectionable, namely, that of inflicting wounds upon birds and mammals, even including man himself, and sucking up the blood that flows from them. This charge has been brought against many bats of South and Central America, some of which have been commonly named vampires in consequence, after the ghostly blood suckers which were formerly the objects of so much superstitious terror in Hungary and other parts of Eastern Europe, but so far as can be made out from a consideration of the evidence, a verdict of, not proven, at all events, must be arrived at in the case of all but two species, which constitute a little group distinguished by what is apparently a special organization adapting them to this peculiar diet. These wretched little beasts, which only measure two and a half or three inches in length, are furnished in the upper jaw with a single pair of incisor or front teeth, but these are of great size and strength, triangular in form, and so excessively sharp that when the creatures are seized they can draw blood from the hand of their captor by what seems a mere touch. This extreme sharpness of their weapons enables them, when attacking sleeping men or animals, to slice off a small portion of skin almost without causing any pain, and the little oval wounds thus produced like the similar surface cuts which a careless shaver sometimes inflicts upon his chin, bleed with particular freedom. The desmodons, as these true vampires are called, will attack horses, mules, and cattle, which they generally wound on the back, near the spine, often in the region of the withers, and they also bite the combs of domestic fowls, and any part of the human body that they can get at. In the case of man, however, according to most authorities, the extremity of the great toe is the favorite part, and some writers, perhaps possessed of a strong poetical vein, have given wonderful descriptions of the artfulness with which these little bloodsuckers make their approaches, and keep their victim comfortably asleep during the operation by fanning him with their wings. In fact, the vampire bats had so bad a reputation from the accounts given by travelers, that they seem to be veritable scourges of the countries in which they live but so far as can be made out from the most trustworthy reports, the mischief they cause may be summed up under two heads, namely, weakness produced by loss of blood, which continues to flow from the wounds long after the bats have drunk their fill and gone quietly home to arrest, and inflammatory affections, caused either by the irritation of the bite in the case of people of a bad habit of body, or by the friction of the saddle or collar upon the part bitten in the case of horses and mules, or of the shoe in the human patient 
that the Desmodons do really feed on blood is proved by evidence of various kinds, they have been captured in the act of blood sucking, when their stomachs, which are peculiarly constructed and very long, are found filled with a black paste, which is evidently half-digested blood, and their teeth, which are in part so well adapted for producing the necessary wounds in other animals, are totally unfit for the mastication of an insect prey, such as constitutes the diet of their nearest allies. After all this feeding, bats, whatever the nature of their diet, not unnaturally find themselves inclined for repose, and as they are active during the night or in the twilight, of course their rest has to be taken in the daytime. To pass the period of repose in security they seek shelter of various kinds, not only for protection against the weather, but also for the sake of concealment from other predaceous animals, some of which would no doubt be perfectly willing to make a meal of them. The great eastern fruit bats, trusting perhaps to their size and strength, are content to resort to the branches of trees, from which, after the manner of bats in general, they suspend themselves by the hind feet with the head downwards. From the statements of various writers it appears that after being out all night in search of food, the flying foxes and other allied bats fly back to their regular resting places, where they begin to arrive about or soon after dawn. The number resorting to the same retreat is usually so great that the whole of the branches are loaded with them, and in fact they are so crowded together that the settling down of the flock into their repose is preceded by a scene of squabbling and quarreling of the most noisy description. Mr. Tickell, speaking of the common Indian flying fox, says, from the arrival of the first comer, until the sun is high above the horizon, a scene of incessant wrangling and contention is enacted among them as each endeavors to secure a higher and better place, or to eject a neighbor from too close vicinage. In these struggles the bats hook themselves along the branches, scrambling about hand over hand with some speed, biting each other severely, striking out with the long claw of the thumb, shrieking and cackling without intermission. Each new arrival is compelled to fly several times round the tree, being threatened from all points, and when he eventually hooks on, he has to go through a series of combats and be probably ejected two or three times, before he makes good his tenure, the scene of selfish contention over, the fruit bats pass some hours in profound sleep, during which they remain suspended in rows along the branches, to which they cling by one foot only, the other with all the lower surface of the body being comfortably wrapped in the leathery mantle formed by the contracted wings, in this condition, as Dr. Horsfield says of the great Kalong, ranged in succession with the head downwards, and often in close contact, they have little resemblance to living beings, and by a person not accustomed to their economy are easily mistaken for a part of the tree, or for a fruit of uncommon size suspended from its branches, in this position the head is folded down upon the breast, Dr. Bennett and Mr. Gould describe very similar habits to a large fruit bat common in the northern parts of New South Wales and in Queensland, which is said to be often exceedingly destructive to the peach and other fruit crops of the settlers in those colonies. The European bats, and indeed all the bats except these flying foxes and their immediate allies, seek a different kind of shelter. Their chief natural dormitories consist of hollow trees and the caves and fissures of rocks, to which they often resort in great numbers, but in populous countries they also find an abundance of convenient places of retirement in and about buildings of various kinds, roofs, especially when covered with tiles or otherwise provided with apertures through which the space immediately under the roofing is easily accessible, outbuildings of all kinds, church towers and other similar structures, disused chimneys, 
the spaces behind weatherboards and shutters which are not often moved, in fact any dark and sheltered places about our buildings, are readily resorted to by many species, although some few retain their taste for an adulterated nature so strongly that no artificial harbor will serve their turn, thus among the British species the great dad or nuptial, a generally distributed though not abundant species throughout the southern and middle counties of England, seems generally to a retreat for its diurnal sleep to the holes or cavities in the trunks of trees, and only to visit buildings when there is a scarcity of such accommodation, and the horse shabats show a decided preference for caverns and deserted quarries, but the great majority appear to be indifferent in the matter, and to a resort to any shelter that seems convenient to them. Some, such as the Barbastel of the southern parts of England, are solitary in their habits, generally retiring alone for their day's rest, others are more sociable, reposing in larger or smaller parties in their dormitories, whether natural or artificial, and sometimes, like the fruit bats, collecting in immense numbers, the common bats, like the fruit bats, sleep in what we should consider an exceedingly uncomfortable position, namely, with their heads downwards, but they cling by the claws of both hind feet to the small irregularities of the stone or wood forming the walls and other parts of the structure of their retreat. They frequent the same places year after year, so that, where they are numerous, the ground is often completely covered and discolored with their excrements, which in some cases accumulate in course of time to such an amount as to have given rise to the notion of carrying it away to be used as guano. The little blood-sucking vampire bats already mentioned take up their abode in caverns, and, According to Dr. Hensel, who observed their habits, they discharge their excrements, which are black and pasty, near the entrance of the cave just before starting on their evening flight, and the substance by degrees forms quite a thick layer one foot or more on the floor of the cavern. The doctor says that a large dog which had paid a visit of curiosity to one of these caves came out again looking as if he had got long black boots on, in the warmer regions of the earth's surface, where their supply of food is constant. The activity of the bats is not known to have any intermission, but in cold and temperate countries they pass the winter season in a state of torpidity. The period of this hibernation, as it is called, varies somewhat in the different species, but few of them are to be seen flying about, except when the weather is decidedly mild. The commonest of all our British species, the pipistrelle, has a shorter winter sleep than any of its companions. It usually makes its appearance on the wing by the middle of March and continues active until quite late in the year, in fact Mr. Gould has recorded the fact of his having shot a specimen of it on a warm sunny day just before Christmas. For the purpose of hibernation the bats retire to their usual resting places, but frequently, instead of suspending themselves by their hind feet, as when sleeping, pack themselves away in small parties in holes and crevices, an arrangement which probably furnishes a better protection against the inclemency of the season. It is probably in the dormitory that the birth of the young bats takes place at least. So far as we know, the process is effected in a manner which must preclude active exertions on the part of the mother for some little time. The best account of the operation with which we are acquainted is that given 50 years ago by Mr. George Daniel, in a paper read before the Zoological Society, in which he described the habits of some nuptials kept by him in captivity. Four out of five died, and the survivor, a female, was observed on 23 de June to become very restless, and to continue so for about an hour, although still suspended by the hind limbs in the attitude of repose. Suddenly, to use Mr. Daniel's words, she reversed her position, and attached herself by her anterior limbs to a cross wire of the cage, 
stretching her hind limbs to their utmost extent, curving the tail upwards, and expanding the interfemoral membrane, so as to form a perfect nest-like cavity for the reception of the young, which was born on its back, perfectly destitute of hair, and blind, the mother then cleaned it, turning it over in its nest, and afterwards, resuming her usual position, placed the young in the membrane of her wing, she next cleaned herself, and wrapped up the young one so closely as to prevent any observation of the process of suckling, at the time of birth the young was larger than a newborn mouse, and its hind legs and claws were remarkably strong and serviceable, enabling it not only to cling to its dam, but also to the deal sides of the cage, on the 24th the animal took her food in the morning, and appeared very careful of her young, shifting it from side to side to suckle it, and folding it in the membranes of the tail and wings, unfortunately, these interesting observations were cut short by the death of the mother, and the young animal, which was with some difficulty removed from the nipple, survived only eight days, during which it was fed with milk from a sponge, and made but little progress, its eyes being still unopened, and its body almost hairless, there can be no doubt that this process, varied in minor points in accordance with differences of structure, reveals to us what takes place in bats generally in immediate connection with the birth of the young. From all the observations that have been made it appears certain that the female bats produce only a single young one at a birth, that this is at first blind, naked, and helpless, and that the female nurses it carefully a process which must be greatly facilitated by the power of clinging to its parent possessed by the young bat from the first moment of its appearance in the world. The two nipples possessed by the female are situated upon the breast, sometimes quite at the sides under the armpits, a position which renders it particularly easy for the careful mother to tend her offspring, while she is also enabled to carry it about with her in her evening flights, the young creature clinging firmly to its mother's fur, and being quite out of the way of the movements of the wings, this part of the business, of course, could not be exemplified in Mr. Daniel's case, as the female was imprisoned in a cage but it is a well-known fact in the natural history of these creatures that the mother does carry her young about with her so long as it continues helpless. Apparently, indeed, even after the young animal becomes capable of flying about, its mother still retains some interest in its well-being at least. If we may apply generally a case recorded by Dr. Allen in his account of the bats of North America, it relates to a small species, the red bat, very common throughout the United States a young individual of which having been captured by a lad, three hours afterwards, in the evening, as he was conveying it to the museum in his hand, while passing near the place where it was caught, the mother made her appearance, and followed the boy for two squares, flying around him, and finally alighted on his breast, such was her anxiety to save her offspring, both were brought to the museum, the young one firmly adhering to its mother's teeth, this faithful creature lived two days in the museum, and then died of injuries received from her captor, the young one being but half grown was still too young to take care of itself, and died shortly after, this little anecdote seems to set the moral character of the bad in a very favorable light, at any rate as regards the family affections, and there is no doubt that the females of all the species of the group show considerable fondness for their young, in other respects, perhaps, they do not all shine quite so brilliantly, for, as we have seen, the fruit bats squabble very selfishly for the most convenient sleeping places, as indeed do other gregarious species of the order, and some of the former quarrel and fight over their food, as regards amiability of character, however, 
there is probably considerable difference between different kinds of bats, at any rate, in confinement, they show much diversity of temper, some of them being sullen, refusing food, and biting vigorously at their captors or the bars of their prison, while others are easily tamed and soon become familiar, two of the commonest species, the pipistrelle, and the long-eared bat are among the latter, the pipistrelle, which appears to be abundant throughout Britain, and indeed in most of the northern temperate regions of the eastern hemisphere, is a small reddish-brown species, measuring little more than one inch and a half in length without the tail, but with a spread of wing of more than eight inches, its regular food consists chiefly of mats, midges, and other small flies, in pursuit of which it often frequents the vicinity of water, but it has a curious predilection for raw meat, and in search of this it often makes its way into pantries, where the little thief will be found clinging to a joint of meat, and feeding upon it with avidity. This fondness for meat makes the pipistrelle very easy to keep in confinement, as it diminishes the necessity of finding it insect food, and the little creature will in time become so tame as to take pieces of meat from its owner's fingers. It is an active and lively little creature, flying, running, and climbing about with great ease, in the latter operation, according to Professor Bell. It makes use of the extreme tip of the tail as if it was a finger. The long-eared bat, so-called from the great size of its ears, which are nearly as long as the whole animal exclusive of the tail, has perhaps a wider distribution than the pipistrelle, but is hardly so abundant in Britain. Its head and body measure nearly two inches long, while its wings spread to about ten inches. This bat generally sleeps during the day under the roofs of houses and in church towers and when sleeping its long ears are carefully stowed away under the folded wings, but the early or inner lobe of the ear still projects, so that the creature appears to have a pair of short blonde ears. The long-eared bat flies very late in the evening, and indeed seems to continue its activity throughout the night, its food appears to consist to a great extent of the smaller moths, although other insects are by no means disdained. This species also soon becomes very tame and familiar, it will fly about the room play with its fellows, and come fearlessly to take its food from the hand. Professor Bell gives an interesting account of one kept by Mr. James Sorby, which, when at liberty in the parlor, would fly to the hand of any of the young people who held up a fly toward it, and, pitching on the hand, take the fly without hesitation. If the insect was held between the lips, the bat would then settle on its young patron's cheek, and take the fly with great gentleness from the mouth, and so far was this familiarity carried, that, when either of the young people made a humming noise with the mouth, in imitation of an insect, the bat would search about the lips for the promised dainty. This habit of taking its food when off the wing, would seem to be natural to the long-eared bat under certain circumstances, as Mr. Tomes records his having seen one feeding in this manner upon the myriads of small moths which swarmed about a spindle tree in bloom. It is unnecessary to say that the creatures which display all this activity and intelligence are well endowed with at least all the senses possessed by the other animals of their class. The organs of smell and hearing are well developed, and in many cases associated with external membranous expansions of great size, as seen in the ears of the long-eared bat, and the eyes, though generally of small size except in the fruit bats, are bright and efficient, serving the creatures in good stead in the rapid pursuit of their insect prey which must be directed principally by sight. The common expression, as blind as a bat, must be taken to apply to bats accidentally driven from their retreats in the daytime, when it must be confessed that they fly about in a dazed manner, but at night and in their dark retreats they show no such imbecility of purpose. 
but find their way with astonishing precision and certainty. In fact, instead of being blind, the bats must be especially sharp-sighted, if all their evolutions be guided by the sense of sight, for in many cases they habitually resort to the inmost recesses of caverns and other places where, so far as our judgment goes, no light can possibly penetrate. Hence it was long since suspected that some other sense than that of sight must come to their aid when they plunge into such outer darkness as prevails in some places through which they fly with the greatest freedom. And more than a century ago numerous experiments were made by a distinguished Italian naturalist, the Abbe Spallanzani, in order to discover, if possible, what might be the secret of these curious phenomena. He set free, in a long passage which was bent at a right angle about the middle of its length, a blinded bat which flew through the whole of this passage, turning the corner correctly, without anywhere touching the walls, while flying, too, it in some mysterious manner detected a hole in the roof at a distance of 18 inches, and proceeded at once to ensconce itself in this shelter, in another experiment the abbe took two bats, one blinded, the other not, and placed them in a space shut off from a garden and roofed in with nets, and with 16 strings suspended from the top in different parts, both bats flew about briskly and avoided the hanging strings equally well, until at length the blinded bat discovered that the meshes of the net were large enough for him to get through, when he at once made his escape, and after flying about for a short time, went off directly to the only roof in the vicinity, under which he disappeared, in short, from these experiments it became perfectly clear that under these circumstances the sense of sight was not of primary importance in guiding the course of the bat. Similar trials with the organs of smell and hearing showed that they had nothing to do with it, and the only other sense that could be appealed to was the general sense of touch. Baron Cuvier, the great French comparative anatomist, was the first to suggest, from the consideration of the results obtained by the Abbe Spallanzani and others, especially by Anne de Gerin, of Geneva, that the peculiar phenomena in question might be accounted for by the existence, especially in the great membranous expansions of the wings of a most delicate sensibility, and subsequent investigations of the structure of those organs has tended to confirm this view, so that it is now the one generally accepted. It is found that these great membranes are traversed in all parts by numerous nerves, the delicate terminations of which form little loops, exactly resembling those which occur in our skin in those parts where the sense of touch is most highly developed, and this resemblance is heightened by the fact that the membrane is covered with rows of little points. Even the organs of circulation in the wings are so constructed as to render it almost certain that those organs had a quite exceptional sensibility. Their ramifications are very numerous, and the veins as well as the arteries have contractile walls, rendering the circulation of the blood exceedingly active. The conditions, as Professor Street George Nivart remarks, being almost those of a state of inflammation, if these membranous expansions had the functions just ascribed to them. We can easily understand that the larger they are the better, and this will explain why the bats generally exhibit so great a tendency to run out into naked membranes. Thus although the ears, as organs of hearing, have probably nothing to do with guiding the bat when flying in dark places, we find that in a great number of species the external ears are exceedingly large and delicately membranous, of which indeed we had an example in the British long-eared bat already referred to, in like manner, while the nose, as a nose, may also be left out of consideration. The development of membranous appendages of the part of the face in which the nostrils open is one of the most curious peculiarities of a vast number of bats, in many of which these singular nose leaves almost rival the ears in size. 
while their structure often renders them most grotesque. We have two bats thus adorned in Britain, namely, the greater and the lesser horseshoe bats, but most of the leaf-nosed species are inhabitants of warmer regions, and it is there that they run out into the most remarkable eccentricities of structure, in Blainville's bat, a small species inhabiting South America and the West Indies. These expansions of the skin of the face seem to have reached the utmost possible grotesqueness, but the membranous leaves are larger and the ears much more developed in many species allied to our own horseshoe bats, especially such as the megaderms. We can hardly imagine that these great membranous expansions of the outer ears and the region of the nose can have any other purpose than that of enlarging the surface of highly sensitive skin specially adapted for the perception of external impressions, and it is a remarkable fact strictly in accordance with this view, that, so far as we know, the bats so endowed are more decidedly nocturnal in their habits and frequent darker retreats than their less gifted fellows. Thus our long-eared bat, as already stated, continues active on the wing throughout the whole night, and the horseshoe bats are distinguished as specially affecting dark caves, how snakes eat from snakes, by Catherine C. H. O'Pealy. The hemadryad's appointed diet is one ring snake per week, but not five as we now call him, is occasionally required and with no sacrifice of his principles either to eat an extra snake to satisfy the curiosity of some distinguished visitor. Sometimes, too, colubbers are plentiful, and two small ones are not too much for his ten or twelve feet of appetite. This splendid serpent has rewarded care by remaining in perfect health, and growing several feet. He was between eight and nine feet long when he came and is now not far short of twelve and proportionately larger in circumference. Sometimes during winter, when ring snakes are scarce, Afi is compelled to fast, for he is not then to be tempted with other food. During the first year of his residence in the gardens, the supply was good, and he ate no less than he.